Hi everyone, I'm back. Laszlo Montgomery here with CHP episode 242. Thanks for fitting me into your podcast listening schedule. Part 2 this time in the dramatic life of Kawashima Yoshiko. We left off in part 1 with Yoshiko making this high-profile break with her adoptive father, Kawashima Naniwa, cutting off all her hair and making this announcement to all her adoring fans and followers that henceforth she was going to live her life as a man. Women didn't get a fair shake. All her past unhappiness, she claimed, was directly related to her being a woman. So, from now on, she would style herself and live her life as a man. So, let's see what happens. By this time in the late 1920s, besides being born at this tumultuous time at the fall of the Qing dynasty, she had grown up with this privileged but utterly miserable and somewhat traumatic childhood. Then, she was cut off from her family and sent to Japan and lived with this ultra-nationalist and peripatetic behind-the-scenes spy and rabble-rouser, Kawashima Naniwa. She lived as part of this household which saw a revolving door of Naniwa's like-minded freaks and ghouls with their pugnacious talk that in less than 20 years would lead to the destruction of Japan. So she was on her own in China now, Naniwa went back to Japan and took Yoshiko's 14-year-old niece back to Matsumoto with him. Naniwa formally adopted her and wrote her into the official registry as his daughter, which gave her Japanese citizenship. She was the anti-Yoshiko. Everything she was not. An entirely normal and traditional girl for the times who didn't disappoint Naniwa as Yoshiko did. By this time, Naniwa had lost his hearing, and this new daughter, called Rinko, became his heirs and chief means of communication. Rinko later on went back to China, married a local Chinese man, bore him six children, and lived in Beijing. This niece of Yoshiko had a pleasant life until the end of the war, when she suffered the fate of all Chinese who were too friendly and cozy with the Japanese. And during the Cultural Revolution, she was denounced and suffered again, like so many millions of others. And her own daughter was even refused entry into the Red Guards because of Renko's unsavory class background. Much later on, Renko's family made their way back to Japan in the end. But anyway, back in China, Yoshiko threw herself into the unwelcoming arms of her family. After all these years in Japan, she had sort of lost her Chinese language abilities and didn't speak like a native and was sometimes hard to communicate with and as far as her finances went well she wasn't exactly broke but she wasn't living large either you know like a princess ought to live and then out of nowhere in November 1927 she announced her engagement to this 24 year old scion of a Mongol independence leader named Babojab the boy's name was Ganjurjab. His father had been killed in 1916 fighting in this cause that, well, by the way, Yoshiko's father, Prince Su, had funded. So there was a relationship with this family. In the couple's wedding photo, Yoshiko's hair is all grown back and she's wearing a traditional wedding gown and very much looked like a traditional Chinese bride. The reception was held in Lu Xun. Her younger sister, Jin Mo Yu, nine years old at the time, attended the wedding. She was the 17th and youngest daughter of Prince Su, born in 1918, which made her 11 years younger than Yoshiko. She just died in 2014 at the age of 96. Yoshiko and Jin Mo Yu 
were sisters from the same mother, the fourth consort of Prince Su. She wrote a book called I Was Born a Qing Princess. Like her sister, she was educated in Japanese schools. Later on, Jin Mo Yu will serve 15 years in PRC re-education camps because of her sister's infamy and her own personal Japanese ties. When Jin Mo Yu was born, Yoshiko was already off in Japan studying, and the sisters met for the first time at this wedding. Also present at the wedding were a bunch of officers and heavies from the Japanese Guangdong Army. This included Komoto Daisuku, who it was said was in on the plot to blow up Zhang Zolin's train the following year. In one of the more wilder stories, Yoshiko was even connected tangentially with the assassination of the old marshal. To the Japanese officers who were managing the show in China and Manchuria, a union such as this one that saw the joining together of a Mongol groom and a Manchu bride with such a royal pedigree as theirs was something of great interest. Imagine the possibilities. Japan was itching to take over Manchuria and Inner Mongolia, and what better puppets could there possibly be than these two? Mongol and Manchu thirst for independence dovetailed perfectly with Japan's plans in their homeland. So, Yoshiko joined her new husband's household, and right away she was sorry she got hitched. Ganjurjab quickly joined the Mongol Independence Army that was now secretly being bankrolled by the Japanese Guangdong Army. And the forces he led fought against anyone who was pointing their rifle in the direction of the Japanese forces. So he saw action around the old Rehe province and around Chengde, north of Beijing. So with her husband gone all the time and totally not digging the life of an oppressed daughter-in-law, after a few years, Yoshiko was back to her old ways and ditched the marriage once it had hit the skids. And her former husband, Ganjo Jab, well, later on, for all he had done fighting for Japan's side, ended up badly after the war, suffering the usual collaborator's fate, imprisonment, and years in communist re-education camps. He was released just in time for the famine that followed in the wake of the Great Leap Forward policies. And because of his background, he ended up going through the shredder a second time during the Cultural Revolution. After moving on from this unhappy marriage, she first went back to Japan for a short stay and then made her way back to fabulous Shanghai. And she dove headfirst right into all the excitement and wicked splendor of the Shanghai jazz and club scene from those glory years of the 1920s and 30s. We looked at this slice of culture back in that Whitey Smith episode, CHP 193. Kawashima Yoshiko surely danced to his music and was a regular at all the happening spots. Man, she knew how to party. But as she got herself acclimated to this lifestyle, her reputation had already preceded her arrival. And depending on how you viewed it, well, she had several things going against her. Her reputation as a troublesome person, the scandal with her adoptive father, Kawashima Naniwa, and their high-profile split, her recent divorce from Ganjurjab you know, reflected badly, and that she walked around in men's clothing was, well, in the roaring 20s, perceived negatively, even on the more progressive streets of Shanghai. At 24 years of age, she was quite a celebrity, but not in a good way. Let me quote a 1931 excerpt from a Japanese publication. I'm lifting this from Phyllis Birnbaum's book. Quote, That problem daughter of Prince Su, Kawashima Yoshiko, is now staying here in a Chinese lodging, the Zhonghua Hotel. 
She meets with important people in the nationalist government and seems to be in on the process of planning something. When night falls, she goes around to the dance halls and seems to be soaking in eroticism. At the same time, she puts on a show of saying that she's Joan of Arc and is going to bring about a revival of the Qing dynasty. She's trying to meet with Hu Hanmin, who's at the center of the anti-Jiang Kai-shek movement. Her activities have been carefully noted by those important Chinese people with a taste for the bazaar. She is the very incarnation of eroticism and the grotesque, and gives off a strong taste of a horror that her mental stability has been questioned. On top of that, she seems to be in financial trouble and has a large unpaid bill at the hotel. End quote. This is a theme pretty much until she died. She always needed money. And going out and making an honest living wasn't an option she would dare consider. So she needed to have backers all the time who would allow her to maintain her party girl lifestyle and give her some sort of purpose. And there just happened to be some organization that was very familiar with her and all the propaganda potential she provided. And they were loaded with money. This was the Japanese military in China, the Guangdong Army. And because of her relation with Prince Su and later with Naniwa, everyone already knew of her. But she was so strange and unpredictable in her actions, they just didn't know how to use her. So, 1931, seminal year, if there ever was one in Chinese history, September 18, 1931, Jiu Yiba, the Mukden Incident. You've heard that a hundred times already. Mukden was the Manchu word for the city of Shenyang. And Shenyang was where, in 1626, Nurhaci set up his new imperial capital that would later move to Beijing after the Qing dynasty was established. It had been Zhang Zolin's base of operations, among many other historic fun facts. And there, the Japanese, in order to expand their Manchurian enterprise, created an incident that their propaganda machine spun into a whole justification to take over Manchuria from the Republic of China. That area they acquired well, it was less than half the size of the Louisiana Purchase, but it was still ample enough space for Japan to populate with Japanese settlers. And so it became this dumping ground for settlers from an overpopulated home nation. And a territory with this many Japanese nationals was a perfect captive market for Japanese goods. So with this influx of Japanese migrants into the Manchurian provinces of Liaoning, Heilongjiang, and Jilin during this second half of 1931, well, for someone like Yoshiko, it opened up all kinds of potential opportunities to exercise her passion projects for Manchuria and look around for sources of steady income. Let me quote from Asahi Shimbun, again from Phyllis Birnbaum's book, quote, Departing for Dalian on the ship Dairen Maru in the drizzling rain was a youth who wore an elegant suit and a gray raincoat with a hunting cap pulled down low over the eyes and was surrounded by many Chinese people. This youth is actually the orphan of Prince Su, who has changed herself into a man and cuts a manly figure. She is seizing the opportunities offered by the upheaval in Manchuria and Mongolia, and is now hurrying away to be part of the new land that must be developed in the home of her ancestors, a region rich in history. As usual, she had been spending every night at the best dance halls in Shanghai, sporting her new haircut and western clothes in the style of a modern girl. 
Sometimes she came and went disguised as a man, always in the company of all sorts of people. Along with her strange behavior and deluxe lifestyle, she brings with her the air of someone with inside information, whose true persona is impossible to pin down. In the past, there have been various rumors about her in Shanghai, but during that time, Yoshiko continued her behind-the-scenes doings. Now, in the wake of the Manchurian incident, there is the chance that a new era will dawn in the birthplace of her ancestors. And so, she is rushing off to the north. She says that from now on, she will increasingly go about her activities as a man. End quote. Over the next several years, Yoshiko went through a string of lovers, male and female, as always. First was the notorious Tanaka Ryukichi, a name that lives forever in infamy among the people of China. He was the one who, later on in 1940, championed the three alls policy in China, the San Guangzheng Tzu. Kill all, burn all, loot all. In the provinces where this policy was carried out, as retribution for the damage Peng Dehuai's armies inflicted on Japanese troops in China, Tanaka's scorched earth policy led to the deaths of a few million people and dragged on for years. So this guy was the sort of people Yoshiko started to hang around with more. As I said, in the early days with her father, Prince Su, and then with Kawashima Naniwa, she was often surrounded by these military types, including many fanatics who were major players now in the enterprise the Japanese military was running in China. She was very comfortable around these men, and if she had even an ounce of fear of them, eh, she never showed it. Her affair with Tanaka had begun in 1931 in Shanghai. Tanaka, it said, was a little bit of a sicko or had some serious fetishes, one being feminine domination, and Yoshiko drove him nuts. He bought a love nest for them while he served as the military attaché for the Japanese legation in Shanghai. And all the while, until she moved up to Manchuria, she had had a very torrid relationship with Tanaka Ryokichi. She needed his money and influence and... Well, he needed her to satisfy his assorted, perverted addictions. He was a pretty high-up guy, and she would just humiliate him and show him all kinds of disrespect in front of others, and nothing happened. I mean, this is what he wanted, and though it was an open secret that she was his girl, so to speak, well, she would act very risque and in a very promiscuous manner and make it look in front of his peers that, you know, he was wearing that humiliating green hat as the old Chinese term goes. By now, it was as if she knew she was in too deep with this Japanese crowd and she might as well go all the way. Just like Maggie Han's Eastern Jewel character in The Last Emperor. And Tanaka had been the one who carried water for Yoshiko and went to the higher-ups inside Japanese military intelligence and said he had an extremely useful potential asset in place who could do wonders gathering intel on behalf of the Guangdong army. Indeed, it was a new era for Yoshiko. As Canada's pride, Neil Young once sang, 24 and there's so much more. Now came the part of her life that made her a legend, but again, not necessarily in a good way. In the movie, if you recall, Eastern Jewel was tight with her cousin, the last Qing emperor, Puyi, who was living in exile in Tianjin at the time. And the centerpiece of Japan's grand strategy in China was going to be the establishment of the state of Manchukuo. Puyi, 
considering his circumstances, didn't have too terribly much to lose back in early 1932. So, despite having this disgust and open enmity with his cousin Yoshiko, well, he allowed himself to get talked into accepting the position of head of state to this new emerging puppet government Japan was setting up in Manchuria. Yoshiko played a significant role in doing what she could to persuade Puyi to go for it. His wife, however, the former Empress Wan Rong, played by Joan Chan in the movie, well, she didn't want to leave Tianjin for the cold, dreary Northeast. She was a very educated lady, spoke fluent English, and quite a modern woman in every sense, and she saw through this whole thing. So, Kawashima Yoshiko, Eastern Jewel, well, she was sent to Tianjin to get close to the Empress Wanrong, already hopelessly addicted to opium, who was only a year younger than Yoshiko. Yoshiko's job was to convince Wanrong to pick up and join her husband in Manchuria, in what was to become the new capital of Manchukuo, in Changchun, also the present-day capital of Jilin province. Now, this act of prying Wanrong out of Tianjin and getting her safely ensconced up in the future Manchukuo imperial capital was only one of the many stories attributed to Yoshiko. And this one, like every other one, was interlaced with myth, legend, and lies, embellished for posterity. Amidst the organized riots going on in Tianjin, aimed at the Japanese inhabitants living in the concession at the time, Yoshiko was able to hustle the former Empress Wanrong into some Cuban-made car and made a daring escape to the port where they caught a cargo vessel that took them north. And after Yoshiko successfully took her up to Changchun, well, the Empress was miserable. And like the Joan Chen character in Last Emperor... Wanrong would show up to public events, stoned out of her mind, and exhibited the most shocking and unusual behavior. And being who she was and all, getting access to opium was never a problem, until her horrible and tragic end finally came. The next major milestone in the life of Kawashima Yoshiko was the Shanghai Incident. In Chinese, it's known as the Yi Arpa Shipian, the 128 Incident, because it happened on January 28th in the year 1932, and it lasted till March 3rd. When Japan bulldozed their way into Manchuria after the Mukden, or Manchurian incident, they had a public relations nightmare on their hands. All the Western nations cried foul. While they were trying to fight off international condemnation, someone came up with the brilliant idea to create a diversion and move the focus of their efforts to Shanghai. They knew they were going to have to control that place sooner or later. So now, Yoshiko's lover, Tanaka Ryukichi, he was involved in this whole plot and claimed credit for it. The plan was to provoke an incident whereby Chinese hotheads would either murder or beat up Japanese nationals inside the Shanghai International Settlement. And Tanaka utilized Yoshiko as his agent provocateur, handed her a fistful of dollars and told her to spread it around and give a taste to all her worker friends, lowlifes, and toughs. And his instructions to her were to have these guys go smash things up and agitate against these Japanese. Not a tough assignment for these provocateurs. One day, conveniently, there was this procession of Japanese Buddhist monks on the street chanting and banging drums, and they were set upon and got knocked around real badly, and one of these monks died of his wounds. And one thing 
led to another, and things turned violent, and Japan had their excuse to go start blowing things up. And prior to this action, strikes had also been organized against Japanese businesses, and the general mood on the street at that time in early 1932 was not very welcoming. So, with those mountains of ill will that already existed, along came the Shanghai, or January 28th, incident. With so much at stake in this largest commercial city in China, Japanese troops started pouring into Shanghai, and Japanese gunboats were all over the Huangpu and Yangtze rivers. With such an overwhelming show of force, the Chinese military based around there wasn't in a position to fight them. So Chinese authorities backed down in the face of such immense Japanese threats, and on January 28, 1932, they signed off on all Japanese demands. But it was one thing to sign a document. It was another matter to enforce the peace with all this palpable anti-Japanese sentiment remaining, manifested in continued strikes, boycotts, and all kinds of disruptive measures. It all added up to a very toxic state of affairs, just like what Japan's plan called for. Japanese representatives drew a line in the sand and said any more incidents or violence will be met with violence and call off those boycotts too and to let everyone know how they felt about all this resistance and ill will directed against them japanese warships parked offshore let loose a barrage of missiles that just rained down on shanghai and barbara tuckman still well in the american experience she called this quote the first terror bombing of a civilian population of an era that was to become familiar with it. End quote. First time civilians had ever seen anything like this. Bombs raining down on them? That was something new. And of course, quite commonplace today in 2020. After two days of relentless bombing, Chiang Kai-shek temporarily moved the capital from Nanjing to Luoyang, farther north. The battle between Chinese forces and Japan was bravely being fought by the 19th Route Army, led by their commander, Tsai Tinkai. The opposing Chinese forces of the 19th were outgunned and outmanned. But despite all that, they caused some heavy damage to the Japanese military. Foreign powers stepped in and tried to broker a peace, but to no avail. Well, after more than a month of heavy fighting by land, sea, and air, the Japanese, with over 100,000 pairs of boots on the ground, in time, wore the Chinese troops out. On March 4th, the League of Nations got involved and were able to hash out the Shanghai Ceasefire Agreement. And that put an end to what was another great leap forward in Japan's acts of belligerence in China. And as far as Kawashima Yoshiko was concerned, a star was born. Word got around Japanese military circles that she had done well in provoking the Chinese on the streets. And she was given several nods of approval for her value as a gatherer of intelligence, even from within the KMT, where she had many contacts. And then there was her regular attendance and all-night schmoozing at the most fashionable nightclubs in Shanghai. She had one hell of a Rolodex filled with many of the most golden names of Le Tu Shanghai. Like with removing the Empress Wanrong to Changchun, it's impossible to judge Yoshiko's exact involvement in this January 28th incident. All I could say is, the Guangdong army sure seemed pleased with her. 
So, January 28th incident, mission accomplished. And with everyone's sights focused on Shanghai, Japan, on March 1st, 1932, the day Charles Lindbergh's son was kidnapped, the Empire of Japan went and established the new nation of Manchukuo. That sure raised a few eyebrows in the international community. In the lead-up to all this excitement in 1932 and right after the establishment of Manchukuo, the Japanese writer Muramatsu Shofu walked into Yoshiko's life. Upon meeting her and learning what she was all about, he felt compelled to write a book about her. So Muramatsu was allowed into her strange bubble and stayed in close quarters with Yoshiko for several months, learning more and more about her story, as she told it anyway. And from this experience in early 1930s Shanghai, he wrote a hot-selling novel based on her life entitled The Beauty in Men's Clothing. Yoshiko was going to be sorry she ever met this guy, but that's for later on. On the heels of this sensational book, on February 22, 1933, the Asahi Shimbun featured the 26-year-old Kawashima Yoshiko photographed in a Japanese military uniform complete with cap and boots up to her knees, seated and holding a sword. This is the quintessential historical photograph of Yoshiko. Phyllis Birnbaum, in her book, Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, selected this photo for the cover. And if you look into her eyes, nothing belies the weird and extraordinary life that she had lived thus far. The article stated, quote, The beauty in men's clothing, Kawashima Yoshiko, is back to become the commander of a vigilance corps in Ruhe, with heroism, she will lead troops in the suppression of bandits. End quote. The article further went on to say that this party girl's wild and crazy days were over and she was now fully dedicated to protecting her ancestral homeland. And to mark this new beginning, she took on a new name of Jin Bi Hui. And from that point on, in the English press, they often referred to her as Commander Jin. Essentially, the propaganda ghouls in the Guangdong army put her in charge of this Potemkin battalion of toy soldiers whose purpose was to keep an eye on all the trouble spots in Ruhe and snuff them out before they spread. Ruhe was spread out over parts of Hebei, Liaoning, and Inner Mongolia. And who were these bandits they were committed to suppressing? Well, they weren't bandits. They were Chinese resistance fighters who were trying to push back against the Japanese there. Japanese propaganda made her out to be this protector of the people of Ruhe, with these troops that she led valiantly on horseback. But, but the truth was, she was helping the Japanese fight back against the local Chinese. She was unwittingly playing against her own team in Japan's attempts to pacify Manchuria and Mongolia. During the February 21 to March 1, 1933 Battle of Ruhe, a big deal was made about Commander Jin's heroics, leading her troops on horseback and throwing herself into the thick of battle. All of it could have been true, or none of it. The reality was that the Guangdong army didn't actually need the assistance of Commander Jin and her merry men, but a big deal was made about the alleged contribution of this regiment, and it was milked for every possible drop of propaganda value. Yeah, the propaganda machine described her in 1933 as this, quote, glittering Joan of Arc in the bandit suppression army. 
She took a plane to northern Manchuria, where she played an active role everywhere, and with such deeds truly risked her life for the sake of Manchukuo, much like the maid of Orleans, Joan of Arc. End quote. You know, she was a piece of cork bobbing in the crashing waves of the Japanese military disinformation industrial complex, which was as much a precision instrument as any Swiss watch, and they knew how to lay it on thick with the fake news. You know, I was so sure I was going to be able to tell this story in two parts, but I think we're going to have to finish up with Kawashima Yoshiko next episode in part three. You won't want to miss that. Yeah, I sure wouldn't. Let me recommend the uh, main source I've been using for this episode. It's called Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, the story of Kawashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army, by Phyllis Birnbaum, Columbia University Press. The link is in the show notes. If you stay up all night wondering, how can you support the CHP? Well, you have two ways. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Get access to all kinds of racy bonus material and early access to future CHP episodes. Or, if you just want to contribute one lump sum and be done with it, well, there's the official CHP PayPal Donation Center at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Enter any amount. Hit enter. You'll have my eternal gratitude. Merci beaucoup, mes belles amis. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the town of Los Angeles here in El Estado Dorado, once again beseeching you to come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.